Katya. And I'm Rin. And we're here at the Commonwealth Center for Holistic Herbalism in Boston, Massachusetts. And on the internet everywhere, thanks to the power of the podcast. Woohoo! Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. So it's podcast 82. That's a lot of podcasts. Here we are on June 10th, 2019. Uh, just four days away from our fifth wedding anniversary. And four days after we thought to have the podcast out this week. Yeah. Oops. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> it turns out the International Herb Symposium was this weekend. It was. And I went there and I had a good time. I had some cool classes. Yeah. Learned some new things I did not expect. Got to chat with a lot of herbalists, which is always a fun part. So it was really great. Well, this week we want to talk about herbs and cancer because I got an email this week um, from Deborah who wrote to say, I heard that ashwagandha is great for curing cancer. I'd like to know more about that. And I thought, well, I'd like to talk more about that. Yeah. So that was my plan for today. We can. We're going to do it. But first, we just want to remind everybody that we are not doctors. We are herbalists and holistic health educators. And the ideas we discuss in our podcast do not constitute medical advice. No state or federal authority licenses herbalists in the United States, so these discussions are for educational purposes only. Everyone's body is different, so the things that we're talking about may or may not apply directly to you, but they will give you some ideas to think about and research more. And we just want to remind you that good health is your own personal responsibility. The final decision when you're considering any course of therapy, whether it's discussed on the internet or prescribed by your physician, is always yours. All right. Yeah. Well, let me share with you um, the beginning of the reply that I wrote to this woman, um, and then we can talk a little bit more about it. Mm -hmm. So again, she wrote, she said, I heard ashwagandha is great for curing cancer, and I'd like to know more about that. And I said, ashwagandha is an amazing plant, but it doesn't cure cancer. Cancer is complicated, and there's not an herb that we can take like a pill to cure it. Well, there's not a pharmaceutical pill that works that way either. There are some physiological and metabolic factors that encourage cancer, such as the consequences of a high sugar diet, for example, and many herbs can help to mitigate those causal factors. There are also many herbs that can make chemotherapy easier to tolerate as well. It's really important to understand, too, that cancer is happening all the time. It's just a normal part of being alive. Occasionally, there's a cell that doesn't shut down the way it's supposed to, and the body has mechanisms to manage that. It's just like the immune system keeping various pathogens in check so that we don't get sick. The pathogens are all around us, but most of the time, the immune system can keep up with them. It's only when the inbox of the immune system starts to overflow when there are more pathogens than the immune system can handle all at once, that we actually get sick. With cancer, the body uh, can handle the occasional cancerous cell. It's only when a larger group of cells starts to grow beyond the body's capacity to manage it that we say that a person gets cancer. You know, this, this way of talking about cancer is something that we've been... Um, we've been... Uh, drawing on with our advanced students for the past several years. Yeah. Um, this idea that cancer is actually normal. And that always makes everybody pause and say, like, what? What? <laughs> Are, what? You know? Um, so that one, that one usually takes a little, a little explaining. Um, and, you know, we, we got here mainly by looking at statistics around what's called overtreatment. 
So, over, and, and connected to that, a sort of um, trend towards redefinition about what's going to be considered cancer and what's not. So the basic story here is that we've got um, some really incredible technology right now <laughs> that we didn't always have available to us, um, both in the way of imaging and also in the way of um, chemical analyses of the blood and of little pieces of DNA that happen to be floating around in there and, um, you know, can be, can be understood as markers uh, or indicators that there may be cancerous cells um, in the body. And so as these kinds of technology have become more and more powerful, uh, uh, doctors and scientists have been able to identify um, uh, misbehaving cells, let's call them, uh, <laughs> long before they actually reach what would have previously been considered to be a cancerous state. So by that I mean, you know, nowadays on an imaging, um, like a, a, say a mammogram or something like that, you can detect a mass of cells that have started to behave a little strangely and they're refusing to, to die and they're overproducing and overconsuming and, you know, behaving in the way that cancer does. Uh, but we can detect them now even when they're in a very small state, when they haven't quite, you know, grown into a grape-sized tumor or a pea-sized tumor or anything like that yet. Yeah, like cancer, when we talk about cancer... Culturally, what we're really talking about is the tumor, the like mass of many cells that are behaving with cancerous habits. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're really describing a community at that point and the behaviors of that whole community. But any given cell can have that kind of behavior and the body knows how to deal with it when it's any given cell. The, the sort of problem it's like twofold right it's a problem and it's a benefit that that we now can detect uh that cancerous behavior at such a such a tiny amount we can detect it when it's still at a stage when the body actually could probably take care of it on its own yeah and so we have to make good choices about you know how far along things are right and that's one of these big issues with the the idea of over treatment right because it's it's basically saying like okay now we're able to detect these things before they advance to a stage that's actually threatening to your current health and potentially even before it's um before it's reached the stage or it may not ever have been on track to become the kind of thing that would threaten your health down the line so you know as mammograms for instance as annual mammograms became um, more and more the norm here in the United States, then it's true that more cancers were detected. They were detected earlier. However, um, it's worth noting that the rates of women dying from breast cancer were virtually unchanged um, since since that uh, habit or that uh, monitoring you know program went into place. So while the detection of early stage cancers has like doubled since mammograms became a thing at all. Um, the incidence or the, the occurrence rate for late-stage cancer really only declined like a very small amount over that time frame, which suggests to us that catching and treating tumors early doesn't automatically eliminate more serious cases of cancer. Right. It's not necessarily as preventive medicine as we really thought it was. Right. I, I'm really excited that the medical community is starting to talk about this. and I mean, that's where we're getting this data from. Right, yeah. And I, I'm, you know, all... 
all medical interventions, all herbal interventions, all health interventions are experiments. Mm -hmm. You try it out, you get the data, you see what's going on. That's true in your own body, and it's also true across a whole society. And that's what's going on right now. We're looking at the data that we've accumulated since, for example, mammograms have become so common or, you know, all the different types of testing. And we're looking back over that data and saying, okay, great. We did that experiment. Now we're looking at the data and seeing what does that really mean for us? Yeah. It's so easy to get very, um, com- like very tied to. Oh, this is right. This is the answer <laughs> that science has given us, and it's static, mm-hmm. and it is the end, and it is the right and only thing to do. When, when really, there's rarely any right and only thing to do, and science is never static. Yeah, no. yeah, and there can be big parts of the picture that we're just missing, right? So, yeah. you know, um, just from these these concepts around overtreatment, around like recognizing that the development of a, of a tumor, you know, it involves some precancerous changes to cells, and also recognizing that we have aspects of our immune system that are specifically tasked with going out there, looking around all of the cells in your body and saying, "Hey, are you doing your job? Right? Are you uh, <laughs> are you on time here today? Are are you uh, meeting your quotas?" little liver cell or whatever it is, right? <laughs> yeah, like, we've got, like, managers. Yeah. So the what are called natural killer cells in the immune system, their job is to, uh, like I say, to check for cells that are doing something they're not supposed to be doing. And that both has reference to cancer, but it also has reference to um, virally infected cells, mm. right? And so between recognizing that there are lots of things that we can detect now and that we could treat, but that it might not actually make much of a difference down the line or it might actually be um, a net negative, right? Because if somebody goes in and they have a, maybe some precancerous changes to some cells in the breast tissue, and then they either like, maybe they get a mastectomy, maybe they get some chemo in play, maybe, you know, a lot of different things might happen, but the treatment could be worse than the imbalance, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so that that's a, a very common problem, actually. And it's more common with some cancers than others. For instance, like... Um, and this statistic is from quite a while ago, but uh, like maybe five or 10 years. But um, at the time, there was a study that concluded 50 to 60% of cases of prostate cancer would have been better off being watched patiently um, instead of being aggressively treated. Um, so yeah. that's kind of a polite way of saying lots of people have had their prostate cut out or excised or burned or whatever else, you know, with, with radiation mm-hmm. and it wasn't necessary and didn't actually save them any pain or suffering. And in fact, because all those procedures have pretty high rates of complications and side effects, um, could have drastically, uh, you know, damaged their quality of life. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this is always like, oh, well, you could never really be sure and we must take the precautionary principle and, you know, okay, there's arguments to be made that way, but Again, the central idea of overtreatment is something that we can recognize. The cool and, thing, the cool thing. Oh, sorry to. No, yeah, go ahead. Interrupt your stream there. This is good. Uh, the cool thing about the advances that we're making in the ability to recognize over overtreatment hmm. is that we are also advancing our technology that allows us to watch patiently. Right. And so it's becoming much safer to watch patiently. Um, <laughs> And much safer to sort of investigate what what the options are at each stage. Yeah. So, um, you know, we've, we've kind of had this idea, and like I say, we've been teaching this idea for a while, that, you know, cancer is actually pretty normal, and there, there are, you know, um, 
agents in your body whose job it is to watch out for that and take care of that before it gets anywhere. Um, but uh, recently, just this past week, there was actually a, a news item that came around that pretty much confirmed this hypothesis. <laughs> um, you know, so uh, this was an article that came along. It's from Stat News, and um, I'm just going to read a few a few quotes from the from the article here. Basically, this is an analysis of a study that showed that mutations are actually normal, even in healthy tissues all throughout the whole body. Um, so uh, here's a quote. For years, the prevailing wisdom has been that our cells contain genes that are essentially carbon copies of each other. But that notion is being dashed by studies painting a different picture, one in which even normal cells and tissues accumulate mutations over time, um, including some known to drive cancer. Uh, so the team took samples from 500 people. They found mutations present in 95% of them. So when we say normal, we mean, yep, basically everything. Right? <laughs> it's not that all the DNA in all of your cells is exactly a carbon copy of one to another, but in fact, they vary quite a lot. Um, one of the scientists quoted in the article says, normal tissue is constantly developing and changing. We're like a puzzle made up of different cells. This is something that's uh, been termed mosaicism, um, where an individual has cells that all have different genetic material. And again, what we're learning here isn't that this happens, but that this is actually the standard case. And it's yeah, not, it's yeah, not that's like not a, a deviation. It's not like a weird thing reserved for, you know, chimera people. Um, which <laughs> I, I'm not actually joking. There's a there's a, a condition or a state, I guess is like better said. medical term? Called, called chimerism, where you have, yeah, you have patches. Actually, you know, on... Um, on uh, on uh, uh, tabby cats or tortoiseshell cats. Yeah. Remember the thing where um, the the cells at the at the uh, skin where the hair grows out of, um, the dark-colored ones might come from uh, Papa Cat and the light-colored ones from Mama Cat. Yeah. And uh, it's like you literally have a patchwork. Of, of of the yeah. two parents. And this, yeah. this, is, this is, it turns out, probably true for every mammal, right? Like if we were to take... Um, you know, like a map of your skin and, and try to trace the genetic patterns on it, you would you would probably be a little bit of a tabby cat. You, you know, know? <laughs> and also, this isn't even new. Our ability to see it might be new. Mm-hmm. But come on, think about your siblings. Like, between my brother and I, we have, like, he has my mom's teeth and I have my dad's teeth. And it's really clear because he has 10 million cavities and I have zero. <laughs> and that's, like, exactly tracks. And, and like... He has these parts of my mom, and I have these other parts of my mom, and he has these parts of my dad's my dad, and I have other parts. But like the two of us have a, a shockingly large number of moles in common <laughs> in exactly the same places, mm. at this exact same size. And it's like if you just think about your own siblings, you realize that even between the two, even between however many of you there are, you are each a different mosaic of your parents. It's not exactly the same stuff that gets passed down, and you don't get the same percentage of stuff from one parent or the other parent. Right. Yeah. And so, again, this does go back into that idea around early detection, um, and uh, maybe we've been detecting things way too early, right? Mm. So the challenge is, like, which of these mutations are actually red flags, which ones are harmless and normal, and it's going to be complicated. I'm not sure that this is going to be a matter of this mutation is always dangerous and this one is always normal, but it's going to be a matter of what's the context, right? What's yeah. the individual? What's their lifestyle? What's their epigenetic layer looking like? So that's going to be, um, you know, a long, uh, a long work uh, before we can get anything actionable about it. But for now, we can recognize that 
sometimes you're going to see this kind of mutated DNA in your blood sample and it's going to say like, oh, whoa, some of those are known to drive cancer, but actually that's coming out of a normal cell. It's coming out of one that's just fine right now. Um, so just because we see, this is a quote from one of the scientists in the article, just because you see a cancer-associated mutation, it doesn't necessarily mean the patient has cancer. That's something that diagnosticians and clinicians have to take into account. And that includes, you know, lay people also, right? Yeah. To recognize that some of these tests, and especially the, the newest, flashiest, shiniest ones, which you would assume would mean most reliable, they can, they've kind of crossed this threshold where it's telling you something we thought we knew what it meant. We were really confident about it, but suddenly, like, everything's appended, and we're realizing, oh, wait, that's not actually not the sure. whole story, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, I, I just found this, this kind of news piece really fascinating. It, it came up when you were proposing this as a, as a topic for our podcast, and <laughs> I thought that it all fits together really nicely. and just reminds us that, you know... Our, our bodies are not sort of slacking off over here. They're not just like, oh, I'm doing my thing. Oh, wait, a cancer. Right? Yeah. It, it doesn't happen all at once. There's been some failure of your body's defense mechanisms. There's been some failure of the surveillance mechanisms to identify the ones that are actually problematic and stop them before they proceed. Or, right? or if not a failure, then just an overload. Right, you know, sure. Like, yeah. Because certain habits in life uh, cause conditions that were really positive um, for the cancerous cells to be able to to exploit mm -hmm. um, and you know high sugar consumption is one of those that really um, that makes life really easy for cancerous cells to say oh now I can grow really fast I can have a nice big growth spurt and so sometimes when something like that happens that you know it's not even that like our immune system isn't working as as so much as there's like a sudden influx and you can't you just can't deal with all of it although even as i'm saying this sentence i want to contradict myself because whenever we consume a ton of sugar we also are suppressing immune function so right. we're creating an environment that is beneficial to cancerous cells for them to promote themselves and we are creating an environment where it's hard for the immune system to do its work yeah right. so yeah. Which kind of brings us more over, back again towards herbalism, right? Because what herbs do is they support they support body systems. They provide a nutrient you require. They help your body to keep some you know inflammation in check. They they support what your body was already trying to accomplish in the first place. So when we hear about an herb that fights cancer, um, typically what that actually means is that the herb supports the natural processes that your body already has in place to deal with cells that are becoming or would become cancerous. Right? So the cells that are overproducing, overconsuming, and refuse to die. That's our, <laughs> that's our little um, slogan about our what, motto for what, cancer. A, what a cancer is. Yeah. 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 And, <clears throat> and we think that's really super appropriate, too, because that's basically our culture right now, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we overproduce um, on a societal scale. Like, we just make way too much stuff. And on an individual scale, like, we try to cram way too much stuff to do in our to-do list mm -hmm. every day mm -hmm. and then <laughs> and then we overconsume uh from from just like uh, you know not to harp on sugar but i'm gonna uh, just from the amount of sugar that that we eat with that we eat in a day but um empty calories yeah but right. also just you know junk food or just calories in general like mm -hmm. i know that when we do a whole 30 it, it just cuts my food consumption because I realize, like, I don't 
need as much food. I'm just not as hungry as I was before. And I don't even try. It just happens. And that really makes me, it makes me so aware of how um, even the sort of health food, junk food kind of hijacks my hunger cycle. And it makes me, it makes me overconsume personally. But then on a societal level, we're overconsuming as well. Yeah. And and then of course you know nobody wants to die. That's, yeah. You know. Yeah, and the analog for the cancer cell is uh, overproducing, right? So that's multiplying and growing and and all of that. Overconsuming is like tumors are super hungry for sugar. Mm. You know they're gonna they're gonna really feed on that and get get hot and metabolically active, and they refuse to die. So that's the um, the normal cell death, programmed cell death is called apoptosis. And One of my favorite words. It's fun, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and apoptosis is something that, like, every clock or every every cell has a kind of a countdown clock. And when that runs out, then it's time for that cell to get recycled. It's like their expiration date. Yeah. You know, the cell-by date, freshness date. <laughs> yeah. One of the one of the characteristics of a, of a cancerous cell is that it, it ignores the alarm, you know? It hits snooze on the time to die uh, <laughs> alarm. And I guess we might all want to, but, you know, uh, it's not actually sustainable. Right? Yeah, at some at some point, like you do need to go be recycled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know when when we talk about herbs uh, uh, and cancer, or in the context of cancer, um, certainly in our practice anyway, the primary thing that we're thinking of is plants that are going to support your body's capacity to detect these, your body's capacity to keep your fluids circulating and moving and bringing in fresh nutrients and clearing away the bad stuff and all of that. Um, those are the, the things that we're going to be focusing on. But it's worth saying that a lot of herbs have also been studied pharmacologically, which is like you take an individual chemical out of the plant, you, you test it on, you know, in a Petri dish or a cell culture or maybe an animal study. And oftentimes that's at levels that are way higher than it, than it would naturally be present in the plant. Like you've extracted one constituent that occurs at, you know, 500 parts per million in the plant and then you make a remedy where it's there and it's like 50% of the yeah of the, of the content of that of that substance you know and that's a really different proposition um pharmacologically and and you know qualitatively and everything uh as opposed to the actual plant in the form of a tea or a tincture or in food or stuff like that yeah, I mean, it might not be bad, it might not be good, yeah. but like it's not inherently bad just because it's it's been manipulated. It just isn't a herb anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the thing is that there are lots and lots and lots of plants that have been found to have some anti-cancer activity or to have some constituents <laughs> that have some anti-cancer activity. Yeah, you, like just nearly all of them. Well, right, yeah. You know, whenever we, whenever we teach, like, you know, about herbs and cancer, um, one of the things that I always want to say and kind of spend some time on is that the fact is here, just about any plant you can think of is going to have some anti-cancer application because just about any plant you can think of is going to have some health benefits for a human body, right? Yep. And it's going to depend on form and dose and is it a food plant or is it a, a you know, drop dose herb or this or that. But I'm kind of hard-pressed to, to think of any that have literally no studies done on them, right? Let alone, like, could we reason out, like, well, this one has a lot of chlorophyll, and that's been shown in these other studies to be beneficial over here. But, like, so many things have been studied for fighting cancer, mm. and so many things have turned out to be positive. 
And this is one of the many places where we kind of need to maybe like flip our whole frame around a little bit and um, think, is what's going on here that this herb is anti-cancer? Or is what's going on here that not having in my life and in my internal environment the kinds of things this herb provides was allowing cancer to get a foothold? Yeah. Right? So that's a, it's an important distinction um, it's not just like a language game here. This no. this is a, a really important thing for, for the way that we approach a problem, the way we understand it, and the way we react to it, too. Yeah, I really think that is actually like one of the most important fundamental things to think about when you are thinking about holistic health and, and you know, herbalism in particular. But we are so factory programmed in this culture with the idea that disease is a thing that happens to us and it must be cured by some exogenous force and right yeah because it was something that crept into you suddenly probably from outside right and so we need to introduce something suddenly to right yeah but it but that so many of our i mean like, yes, if you get malaria, okay, that did come from outside you, fine. You know, I'm not, whatever. If yeah. you get the flu, fine. But, but so many of the disease states that are, that are the most common ones today, um, they don't, like, you didn't get infected with them. You did, they didn't creep up on you. They developed. And that development was aided by the lack of expected inputs, Mm -hmm. the lack of things that our bodies expect in order to maintain a state of health. And wow, when you just start thinking about health that way, um, it it really turns things around. It really also explains the, you know, there's been a jillion studies done on literally vegetables and cancer. Oh, yeah. That people who eat more vegetables, they weren't even looking at herbs. They were literally just looking at frozen peas. <laughs> like, the people who eat more vegetables have less cancer. And, you know, so I just... I, I when then we think about how our plant variety has decreased so much and what we consider to be vegetables and what we consider to be food has changed so much in in recent history and that actually tracks with the overall trend of more and more cancer and more and more inflammatory diseases and i don't know i'm not saying that frozen peas will prevent anything i'm just saying more vegetables is more better yeah 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 well with all of that in mind, let's talk about a few herbs that can be relevant in cancer. Yeah, and, uh, and share like the way that we think about them and how we're how we're orienting ourselves when we get into this. You know, since I was just talking about vegetables, we could start off with parsley. Yeah, right. Um, so parsley is really one of the best examples of the way that we can work with herbs every day to help support our body in its work to keep all the cells working appropriately making sure that everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing and uh, taking a break when it's time to take a break. Mm -hmm. And um, they've done a bunch of studies on parsley. And, you know, when they do studies on plants, they're often looking at isolated constituents. And so one of the constituents in parsley that they have done a lot of work on is called um, apigenin. 
And that has been shown to prevent what's called angiogenesis, which is that when, um, when a bunch of cancer cells form a community, that community is going to need roads and a water supply and sewer systems, and right? Like just like any community. Um, and inside the body, that is blood vessels. And so angiogenesis is when a tumor literally begins to build its own blood vessels to supply itself with nutrients and access to all that good stuff. Um, so first off, if you didn't know that that was a thing that happened, just take a minute and ponder that because I do think that is super cool. Um, that literally just like a community you know, if you're going to build a subdivision, you've got to build the roads. And that is literally what a tumor is doing inside your body. Okay. Now that we've had a wow factor on that. Um, so parsley disrupts the ability for a tumor to do that. So that, uh, so that the cancer cells don't have the, the blood vessels available to provide them with extra nutrients which means it's going to be very harder, very much harder for them to grow because they can't get the supplies that they need to grow. And I think it's amazing that there are processes in our bodies that are just running around looking for, hold on a second, you're not authorized to build a road here. And that there are plants that support doing that work. And parsley is one of them. Yeah. Um, you know, when it comes to epigenin, that's that's actually a pretty common constituent. It turns up in lots and lots of plants. Um, I just uh, pulled up Dr. Duke's phytochemical database here and looked at that. And, and just in this set, there's 102 plants that have some detected amount of apigenin in there. Um, a lot of common ones, you know, ginkgo, garlic, chamomile has a ton, alfalfa, you know, all kinds of different things. So when we talk about the apigenin in parsley as preventing angiogenesis, um, again, we're not trying to say that this means that that's the reason, that's the single one reason why yeah. parsley is helpful here, right? Um, parsley is also a diuretic. And, uh, you know, we talk a lot about keeping your fluids moving and, and like letting things get stagnant and all of that. And diuretics are a great way to accomplish that and support kidney health. And that allows the kidney to function more readily as an endocrine organ and you know, keep tabs on the internal chemistry of the bloodstream and, you know, get everything nice and lined up and less likely to set up the environments that encourage cancer. And so it goes all the way back around again, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so yeah, it, and this, when you're, when you're learning about plants and cancer, just remember that this is almost always going to be the case, that it's, it's not going to be one single constituent. There's very likely to be, you know, studies about one constituent and investigations and, quantities and minimal inhibitory concentrations and everything else <laughs> and that's great that's super useful but you're an herbalist and you're going to be giving the whole plant yeah right you're going to be sharing the whole plant with somebody one of the things that i particularly love about parsley is that it's really accessible um you can buy a whole bunch of parsley usually for less than a dollar at the grocery store and um so if you are on a budget and you're thinking like how can I get vegetables into my life in a like most bang for the buck kind of way um, then parsley is one plant that can really help you with that because it's it's affordable and um, although parsley isn't necessarily the most delicious plant to just eat all by itself um, it's I mean it's not bad but some people don't love it 
What I find is that if you just take the whole bunch of parsley, get yourself a pair of scissors, and just very finely give that bunch of parsley a big old haircut right into whatever it is that you're cooking tonight. Like if you're making ground meat with some, with some you know, seasoning in it, just snip off all of that parsley, you know, cut it up fine and let it go in and you won't even taste it. You know, it's when you get it cut that small, even if you're a person who doesn't love parsley, it's not going to really be very apparent in the dinner, especially if you've got other spices in there um, that maybe have a stronger flavor. So for less than a dollar a day, here you get this, this really amazing plant that is really available um, and, among other things, has this cancer-fighting activity. And again, cancer-fighting, like, from the start. Cancer inhi- inhibition, you know? Mm-hmm. Starting, starting young is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. Um, you know, there's another herb that's uh, more often considered an, an herb than an herb. <laughs> uh, like a food herb, I guess. Yeah, like a say. culinary herb. Yeah, culinary. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. That's rosemary. Rosemary is one of the most famous anti-cancer herbs uh, out there. <laughs> and um, there's tons and tons of studies on this one. Um, so in rosemary, both some of the fatty acid constituents and some of its terpenes have been found to encourage the cancer cells in tumors to undergo apoptosis. And remember, that's the programmed or the scheduled cell death that needs to happen. Um, And so with rosemary, you get the tumor to stop growing, uh, maybe even to shrink, and um, that's pretty great. In uh, in petri dish studies, you can get a concentration of a rosemary extract that's strong enough to directly kill tumor cells, Um, whether that can be achieved in the bloodstream of a living human uh, by, you know, drinking rosemary tea or taking tincture and this or that, that's less certain. Mm. Um, there are some herbs that can accomplish that with some constituents for certain purposes and others that can't. Um, but in this context, it's it's kind of a maybe at this point as far as rosemary goes. But again, if you're thinking about it in a preventative or super early stage state, that's a lot more reasonable. Yeah. yeah. And another thing you'll see in the rosemary... Uh, science there is that um, rosemary um, extracts or you know preparations they can take a tumor cell that has become resistant to a chemotherapy drug which yes that's a thing right it's Mm -hmm. not just antibiotic resistance that we've got out there in the world there are lots of kinds of drug resistance that can be at play and with with cancers in particular this is a common thing because um, they are rapidly mutating and changing and learning how to evade our, you know, chemical weapons. So, oh, um, <clears throat> so what can happen is somebody is, uh, you know, undergoing treatment. <clears throat> they're, uh, they're getting chemotherapy treatments for their, for their tumor. And at some point, the, the treatment stops being effective. Well, what's been found is that introducing rosemary, uh, you know, preparation into the, into the mix here, it resensitizes the tumor to the chemo drug. And so this is one of those places where herbs have a really high potential to enhance conventional uh, treatments by this sort of synergy. Yeah, we're going to see that again and again, actually, in the examples today. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I wanted to make a note about rosemary because, um, you know, a, a lot of time, a lot of times you'll see in the essential oil circles, people talking about essential oils helping with cancer and they will say, you know, just put it in your water and drink it. And that's of course not ever a safe thing to do. Um, but also, uh, because I was very interested in working with rosemary, with a client who had uh, terminal brain cancer and he, he wasn't really able to, to ingest basically anything at that point. And I really wanted to work with Rosemary in that manner by making a spray bottle that, that, would, that could be sprayed and it could be inhaled. Um, and I was really... Uh, hoping that the qualities of rosemary, the constituents that have so far been studied, would be found in the essential oils, and they are not. And that doesn't mean that nothing in the essential oil is going to be beneficial, and we did still use the spray bottle trick, because if nothing else, it smells good, and that's pleasant. Mm. Um, it couldn't hurt, and it might help. But the constituents of rosemary that have been most studied for their ability to support the body in cancer monitoring and cancer um, mitigation mitigation elimination that's, that's yeah. a good word uh, are too heavy to be part of the essential oil profile so in this case we really do want a water extract an alcohol extract or a, a, like topical preparation mm. yeah like the rosmarinic acid isn't gonna right evaporate that way yeah that's that is one of the ones that has been so highly studied mm. mm-hmm yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, and you know, again, this isn't going to be unique to rosemary. So we can think about lots of other herbs that have similar kinds of terpenoids or, or have rosmarinic acid themselves, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, so, so often we can get kind of stuck on something that has a name and we recognize. And we're like, oh, rosmarinic acid, that's in rosemary. Yes, it is. But it's also in like thyme and other related herbs that lots have similar kinds of flavors. And yeah. yeah right. So... Um, that's that's one of the truths of the plant world is that they all uh, they all are capable of making many constituents and what we happen to call them has little um, influence on what they do or do not produce. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is probably better for all of us. Those are just those are just like the plant was the plant was thinking. Oh, you know what I really need? I need a tool to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. And humans found it for the first time in rosemary. So we were like, wow, look at this thing rosemary can do. And rosemary's like, dude, that's a screwdriver. That's all. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's nothing special. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of herbs that can assist or uh, potentiate uh, pharmaceuticals in the fight against against cancer, a lot of the adaptogens have that ability um, that they can help the chemotherapy drugs be more effective and simultaneously help your body to tolerate that entire process more easily. One in particular that I'm thinking about here is Eleuthero. And uh, there have been a ton of studies done on Eleuthero, especially I'm thinking of a whole battery of studies um, that were done around breast cancer and um, chemotherapy and radiation for breast cancer. And one that I am remembering in particular that David Winston referenced in his book, Adaptogens, was that... uh, 
an extract of Eleuthero taken about an hour before the administration of chemotherapy, and then again about an hour after the administration of chemotherapy in breast cancer patients, uh, made the breast made the chemotherapy much more effective, and uh, reduced a lot of the side effects for the people who were who were experiencing that. So that is a really cool way. You know, chemotherapy is it's you know not always necessary. It, it sometimes it's preventative. A lot of times. Chemotherapy will only work on certain types of cancers, but we don't yet have the right tests to figure out which is which, so they often recommend chemo for everyone just to be safe. Mm. Um, but if, you know, it's, it's rough. It's rough on the body. And so if you're going through that, anything that's going to, first off, make it more effective, because if you're going to go through all that, you want it to really do its job. It's got to work, right? Right? So anything that can make it more effective, but then also make it more easy to tolerate and more comfortable to tolerate, that's really valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And these adaptogens, you know, they're helping the body withstand stress in a general, in a very generalized way. Um, and that includes the stress of the chemo. It includes the stress of the cancer. Right? You're getting yeah. at it from kind of both directions there. Yeah. Yeah. So Eleuthero isn't the only adaptogen that's been found to have this kind of benefit um, for folks undergoing chemo and also really for people dealing with cancer in, in the broadest possible sense. Because, you know, when we say that this helps the chemo to work better, that's true. It also helps your immune system to work better. It mm-hmm. helps those natural killer cells to get where they're trying to go, mm-hmm. right? Um, it sets up an internal environment that's better able to self-monitor and to you know, detect and eliminate these things when they're, when they're detectable and eliminable <laughs> in those early stages. Yeah. Um, so a uh, couple to, to think about here. One I might highlight would be astragalus. Um, astragalus is interesting because it boosts the production of both kinds of blood cells, white blood cells and red blood cells. Um, and, you know, when you, when you look at, say, the, the energetic profile of somebody dealing with cancer... What you'll often find is that you have hot masses, the tumors themselves, in a cold environment, a body that is depleted and deficient and worn out and, and tired. And people feel exhausted, you know, mm. um, even before they start going in for the, for the harsher kind of chemo treatments or that sort of thing. Sometimes that's the way it gets diagnosed is that a person was dealing with a lot of exhaustion and that's how they found it. Inexplicable fatigue, you know, you go in and we try to rule out this and that and the other thing. And then they're like, all right, you know, we run some tests and like, oops. Turns out there's a tumor in here. Okay, mm-hmm. um, so so astragalus here it's it's a it's a blood builder in a, in an extremely literal sense, right? <laughs> um, it, both in the kind of sense of what we would expect that to mean in in Western English language, but also in that ancient traditional Chinese medicine sense of a blood builder, right? Mm. That that capacity of the body to to carry and to transport energy and to retain that kind of base vitality and you know, um, inner strength and everything. That's that's about having good good quality blood, and astragalus really helps to build that. So, you know, this is a nerve that's really supportive for people who are are going through really any stage of cancer diagnosis or treatment. Um, and it's uh, easy to work with. You know, with astragalus, you can get some of the tongue depressor looking slices, and <laughs> I mean, I'll just chew on those. You know, if we have a bottle around, I'll, I'll chew on a few of those in a day, and 
that's that's a simple way to work with the herb. If you if you chew they don't it, taste bad. Yeah, you know it's kind of sweet. You know you chew it until all the flavor has come out, and then uh, I don't know another couple of minutes after that, just to make sure. And you know you've done a, I guess it's a type of water extraction in your mouth. Saliva I suppose. Extraction. Yeah, I mean you know really that's that's what's going on, right? So uh, yeah, that works out really nicely. You can also take a handful of those and throw them into some soup that you're cooking up. That's really great. You can put them into the into the rice while you cook it. You know, you can fish out the the woody chunks afterwards if you want to. Um, but you've you've cooked it into the water. It gets into the rice. You eat it up later on. It's all in there, good. Yeah. So that's a way to go. Um, and yeah, you can you can just make an astragalus decoction. You can make a you can make a, a double extraction. So that's like you would do a tincture and also a decoction and then combine them. Um, astragalus is kind of like some medicinal mushrooms in that way. Um, a number of the classic Rudy adaptogens are, are like that, where you need a double extraction to get all the good stuff they have. Um, but so there's there's options, right? You can work with this herb in lots of ways. Yeah. I, uh, I really like Codonopsis in that regard, too. Codonopsis is another blood builder. Mm. Um, in particular, it really helps with white blood cell counts, mm-hmm. which is something that's good, that you're going to struggle with through chemo. And those, those natural killers we've been talking about, whose job it is to go and find these things, mm-hmm. they're kind of white blood cell. Right, so, yeah. right. So your chemo is really um, impairing that, but then Codonopsis can help put it back. Mm. Um, and I also like about like Codonopsis is a food herb. It's a really um, nourishing plant. And especially when people are going through chemotherapy, often eating is quite difficult. So any herbs that we can work with that have additional nutritional benefit are really, really, um, really helpful. Any, yeah, any yeah. place Codinopsis, where we can double that up, you know? Right. Yeah. Codonopsis has some good iron in there and it helps you to absorb that from the food you eat concurrently. So, yeah. Yeah, it's good stuff. Nettle is another one that... Um, Again, it, it really helps with, with chemo in particular because because it is nourishment, because it just rebuilds everything, uh, not just blood quality, but like even hair and uh, energy levels for sure. And again, if somebody has no appetite or if it is really hard for them to eat, but they can drink some tea, then nettles is like food as tea. It's, it's just so nourishing. Um, yeah, yeah, and then you know, in the context of uh, uh, of cancer or chemo, uh, either um, nettle seed is also worth considering here because that's another adaptogen, mm. right? So nettle leaf is you know a kidney remedy and a nutritive, and it has tons of great stuff to recommend it. But when you get the seeds, they have um, an action that's kind of deeper into the endocrine axis. There, you know, it's more on uh, an adrenal level than a kidney level, and um, it's just. It's very restorative to people who feel like they've been burnt out. And a lot of times we'll recommend nettle for people who have worn themselves down, right? They've burnt themselves out by pushing and driving and going and going and going and all of that. But in the context of cancer or chemotherapy, it's these, it's these drains on your vitality that mm. have worn you down. But nettle is still really helpful there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, like... I just want to say, don't run out and get a bunch of nettle seed without the leaf. Like, get them both because if we're gonna, if we're gonna try to rebuild that endocrine access, access, 
we also want to be rebuilding on the kidneys because they're so closely tied together. Yeah. So make sure that you have plenty of nettle leaf right along with your nettle seed. Yeah. Um, you can you, you know you can uh, you can tincture the nettle seed. That works out just great. Yep. Um, crush them up like with a mortar and pestle, and then go ahead and tincture that. That comes out great. Or you can have a bunch of them around and just like run them through a seed grinder and sprinkle that on your food. You can take it that they way. They actually taste really good. Yeah. Yeah. They actually do. We had some uh, mixed into like a seasoning mix. Yeah. And that was just delicious. Yeah, you can do that. You can like, uh, what do you call it, gomazio, where you have like sesame yes. seeds and you can put nettle seeds in there and a few other like spices and things. So good. Yeah. Or even, you know, if you mix up your own... Um, 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 the zatar. Oh, yeah, your your own zatar. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So normally that's sesame seeds and some wild thyme and some sumac mm-hmm. berry powder stuff. Uh, maybe some other ingredients. Yeah, and then just put the nettle seed. Just put in the there. nettle that seed would right be in so there. So good. Yeah, no problem. Okay, we're doing that this year. Yeah, definitely in August when our nettles go to seed. Yes, yeah. that is going to happen. Yeah. So. You know, that's that's pretty great. And then one other adaptogen, you know, we could talk about ashwagandha. <laughs> the one, the that, one was that I always about. talk about. Well, no, because that oh, was right. what got this whole episode going, right? So, you know, by this point, you're understanding that when we talk about herbs as being of use in, in the context of, of somebody coping with cancer um, or of help there, uh, that we're not just looking at can this plant kill cancer cells in a Petri dish. That's interesting, but it's not really the end of the story. And so when we think about ashwagandha, we think about it as, yeah, it's another adaptogen. It's going to help with the stress response. That's going to have impacts on your immune surveillance capacities, right? Um, It's going to have impacts on your kind of, I don't know, baseline survivability. (laughs) How likely are you to be able to withstand any kind of stressful experience, including these long grinding ones like this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Ashwagandha does that. But... um, you know, ashwagandha is also really fantastic at helping restore circadian rhythm. And so this is especially one we would be thinking about if in the course of the cancer itself or the course of the chemo or other kinds of treatments, if there are sleep disturbances. Yeah. But I would like to also suggest, I don't have data to back this one up, so this is merely a suggestion, that a plant that can help restore circadian cycles through the body, and when we say circadian rhythm, very much we are talking about endocrine function. Very much we are talking about timing of all the different processes that have to happen in the body. So if there is an herb that is kind of like a, a clock tuner who can come in and help restore those cycles, and then we think about program cell death as a cycle, and that is that is where we're having problems. Like we're not... Our, our, our cells are not respecting that part of the cycle, well then, doesn't it stand to reason that ashwagandha is going to be really effective there? And again, this is something that would be hard to have data on, actually, because how do you really test that? It, I, I don't think it would be possible to test that in a Petri dish. I don't even know how you would. But so much of what we're talking about, especially in the, like, building overall health preventative type aspect is in terms of supporting what your body's doing already. And that, that is hard to test. Hmm. Um, but as to kind of like tangent into that area, if, you know, now that we can detect things super early, 
and maybe you're a person who got something detected and you're in that patient wait, you know, patiently watching state and you're being tested regularly to see what what is going to happen, ashwagandha would be a great choice at that point because, I mean, I also all of the vegetables and lots of different herbs, but because now you're you're watching, you're getting active data on what's going on and that's the time to really to really work with a bunch of these herbs. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Okay, I think there was one other you wanted to discuss. I did. I wanted to talk about elecampane actually. Uh-huh. So elecampane is an herb that I, you guys I really think that this is a super underrated herb right now and um I I have been on a big old Ella campaign soapbox for a while, and uh, Rin brought me a very fancy Ella campaign extract uh, as a present back from the marketplace at the IHS, which was really exciting and nice. Um, and that's so great because I really wanted to talk about it today. <laughs> but Ella campaign, you know, you might know it for a respiratory infection, and it's a huge deal for respiratory health, but also supports gut health, also is one of our strong quorum sensing inhibitors, which means it can break up um, what we call biofilms when bacteria start to glom together to, pr- to be able to better protect themselves against our immune system. Well, uh, can a quorum sensing inhibiting herb also affect a tumor, which is basically... Um, our own cells who have glommed together to protect themselves against our immune system. I don't know. We don't have data on that yet, but I would like to. And if I had a laboratory, that is one of the things I'd be looking at. Um, But they have been doing in vitro studies, okay, that's a Petri dish, against breast cancer cells, and elecampane is rating really high in efficacy in that regard. And one really good part of that study is that they worked with a reasonably standard tincture, actually, instead of isolated constituents. And Mm. that was very exciting to me. Mm. Because usually when they're doing this kind of study, they will pull out just the apigenin or just the rosmarinic acid or just the whatever. And in this case, they were not doing that. They were using... uh, the, the, The method that they used to make the tincture was a little different than what we would do, but the end result was basically a standard tincture. And so that was very exciting. And it was in a Petri dish, so it's just the first step, but it's still really good. The drawback on this particular study was that um, elecampane was not the only plant studied. They also were looking at some plants that are really endangered, like trillium root. And um, and <laughs> that's really upsetting to me. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard sometimes with these um, because... Certainly, like, ecological considerations are not high on the list of uh, priorities when somebody is doing bioprospecting for, you know, potentially patentable extraction methods for chemicals that we could make a profit on down the line somewhere. And I don't want to ascribe profit motives to every single researcher in the world, but, you know, nobody's exempt from saying, where's my next grant going to come from? And Yeah. You know, so so whether it's active or passive or or totally unconscious, like, this is still a factor. We have to be aware of it. Okay. You know, I think a lot of the time it is unconscious, actually. But... Um, but trillium can't be cultivated. It is a, it is a really, it's a plant that, that 
we could lose. Yeah. And um, Ella campaign is super easy to grow. You can grow it in your garden right now. You can grow an entire field of it. It's beautiful. It's easy. It's effective. So I, um, I really hope that they focus on Ella campaign in that study and the results they were getting from that and not on some of the way more... Um, there were there were several endangered plants that were in the study that also had really good results, but um, but Ella campaign is sustainable, so mm. I'm I'm really interested in the work they could be doing with that. Yeah. All right. So you know we've obviously not talked about all of the herbs that could work uh, in the context of cancer, and like I said before, that would kind of be impossible in in a roughly hour-long podcast format because, <laughs> again, there's just so many um, so many ways in which a plant can help us in this situation. It could yeah. provide antioxidants. It could improve circulation. It could wake up some aspects of the immune system. It could provide basic nutrition that had been lacking. And all of these things could be what makes the difference for a given person. So, you know, this does have to be personalized medicine. That doesn't necessarily mean that we need a DNA analysis before we can choose the right herbs for you. Right. Um, it's going to go back to the same thing that we always do. We're going to match the herbs to your constitution. We're going to match the herbs to the particular kinds of problems you're having right now. I know that in the majority of cancer clients that I've personally worked with, um, the bulk of my work for them was coming up with digestive blends and sleep blends. Yeah. And that was the thing that made them able to, again, to, to stand up or, or, or you know thrive through, through chemo and other kinds of treatment like that. Yeah. Um, or in some cases to make them as comfortable as could be done until they passed. Yeah. So, uh, I, I wanted to add a thing in and, and the way that you mentioned that just reminded me that I think it's really clear how we've been talking throughout this discussion that, um, we're a big proponent of doing what you got to do, especially in the case of cancer. So, um, you know, we've had fantastic luck working with, oncologists and um i've almost always been really well received by by oncologists either working with them directly or through the client um i find that oncologists are often very interested in um anything that can be of help and be of assistance in the situation then they often are willing to consider holistic methods um so I, I, but I just want to be overtly explicit that it is not an either-or choice. Um, you don't lose your herbalism card if you decide to have um, a cancer surgery. And you don't lose your herbalism card if you decide to have chemotherapy. Um, these are all things that can work together. And whether you do get lots of testing and you find something really early and you say, well, great, we found it early. Let's try a bunch of holistic methods and see if they work. And if not, we know what to do. There's a certain threshold at which the doctors will say, okay, more invasive um, uh, therapies are going to be required at this point. But at all parts of the cancer process, there's a lot of collaboration that can go on. And um, also at all parts of your life process, it is always the right thing to do what seems like the best thing right now. 
And it doesn't mean that just because you like plants, you can't choose a conventional therapy. You absolutely can. And there are usually plants who will even help that conventional therapy be more effective and more comfortable for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, um, if you're uh, looking for some more thoughts on uh, cancer and herbalism, we do have at least one other episode where we talked about this. Episode 29, back in May 2018... Um, was half about sore throat herbs, and then, <laughs> and then the second half was about uh, classic cancer cure-all formulas. Oh, uh, yeah, from the old... Yes, yeah, so this was like the Hoxie formula and um, uh, Essiac and, and a couple of like that. Um, as, you know, we, we, we're taking that again as a way to, like, analyze these and say, all right, to the extent that these are helpful, what kind of herbal actions do we have in play here? And And again, with those older formulas, it wasn't so much, like plants that had been shown to have high anti-cancer activity or this or that that wasn't really an object of study at the time um instead it was plants to support fluid movement inside the body plants to support circulation and eliminative functions and stuff like that lymphatic health right yeah so um anyway if you if you feel like a little more you can dig in find that episode and listen to that yeah all right well before we wrap up today uh, we've got some shout outs and we also want to take a minute to talk about our June supporter drive. Yeah. So, you know, you listen to us every week, you take us with you in the car, you have us around while you're making dinner. <laughs> Maybe you do other things. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what you guys are up to, but we're there with you and we like that. And you write to us sometimes, you write us messages about how much you like the pod and that feels so nice to hear and We'd it means so to much get to those. us. Yeah. But if we mean that much to you maybe you would consider becoming a monthly supporter. For just 5 or $10 a month, you would be supporting not just the costs of maintaining the podcast, but also supporting the community work that we do, like our free clinics. Yep, once a month for several years now. We've been having those going. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's, it's nice to be able to give some things away to people. And actually, we have a plan right now that we have our fingers crossed, but it looks like we might be able to expand that into another part of town um, where the need is even greater. And um, so we might be able to do twice a month, and that would be really exciting. Feeling hopeful, yeah. So there's that, you know, and then there's scholarships that we make available, like the one for our current blind student of color who's excited to start working to help combat the rampant diabetes and cardiovascular disease and other kinds of issues that he's observing in, in his own community. He's doing really great work, and he really deserves your support too. And there's so much that herbalism can do to help support people who are struggling with diabetes or with cardiovascular disease, in a comp- again, in a complementary way with, their, with whatever their conventional therapies are. Mm-hmm. And he is really digging in and learning a ton so that he can be part of that work. Yeah. Yeah. You can support the work that we do with incarcerated students so that we can give them not only the healing power of plants but also the possibility to make their own work after incarceration because it's often really difficult and demoralizing to try to get a job after incarceration and to find a a sort of normal place in the community again. And that's what we really want to happen. We Mm. want, like, that's the whole point of of the concept of rehabilitation, which is not um, always front and center in our... Yeah, here in here in the U.S., system. we've uh, got some serious problems with criminal justice, but yeah. Well, anyway, herbalism can help, and that program is expanding in the next couple months to the U.K. We have a whole support network that we are 
um, partnering up with over there. And um, that is really, really exciting to us, too. Yeah, I'm pretty happy about it. Uh, you know, we're also um, gearing up to launch a new program this winter. Uh, this is going to be community self-health. And we're trying to teach people to take action in their own communities to help those around them who don't have good access to healthcare or reliable access or affordable access or any of the other adjectives <laughs> that could, it could influence your capacity to get what you need, you know? Yeah. We get emails every week from people who've lost their insurance or can't get their medications anymore, and they want to know what they can do until, until what? Until they can afford their medicine, until they can get signed up again, until they can get a job that has benefits like this. And sometimes that wait is indefinite. You just don't know what's going to happen. So, you know, there are a lot... In, in so many cases, there are things that we can do, that we can, that we can teach, that we can share, that we can advise about to help to make that situation less dire. Yeah, this new program will help people to start health support groups that can educate about the ways that individuals can support their bodies to better cope with diseases that they might have and to be more resilient, especially in the face of un- uncertain access to health care. And I'm really excited to be able to provide something that will be a tool for people and kind of an entry point again in collaboration with the conventional assistance that they might be able to get but but if especially in situations where that access has been cut off there's so much we can do and i'm really excited to be able to put that together and offer that to communities yeah so you know if that sounds like something you think might be good in the world or that you might like to support if yeah if you're out there thinking wow that's really cool i'm really glad you're doing that (laughs) then uh you can help (laughs) you can absolutely help Um, if you just bounce over to commonwealthherbs.com slash support you will see your sign up options right there yes and in gratitude we will send you a special video every week about a great easy to implement implement herbal tip Like for the month of June, our theme is first aid. So every week in the month of June, we're sending a supporter video out that is a really easy to to do first aid tip that should be really helpful in your everyday life. Yeah. Yeah, and you can uh, have access to the archive of those once, yes. you, once you become a supporter. Yes, so all the videos we've ever sent out, you actually will be able to watch if you want to. Yeah. So again, uh, go to commonwealthherbs.com slash support, and you too can become a supporting member of our podcast today. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and we have some shout-outs. We do have some shout-outs. Yes, we moved them to the end this time, so I hope uh, nobody out there was disappointed at the beginning. Well, this just gave you something good to, to wait all the way to the end for. So here they are. Yes. First of all, man, there were so many uh, local and local-ish listeners <laughs> who uh, stopped by our table at Herbstock to say hello. And it was really great to put some faces to some email handles and yes. and some of the people we've been seeing in uh, the Q&A and everything. It was so exciting to have in-person hugs. It was great. It was yeah. so... Like, every time to see, like, a face and somebody coming up and saying, I love your podcast, and being like, wow, you are a person who is listening while I'm, like, right now. You're right, you're listening right now. I'm so excited about it. Yeah, it was actually two weekends of that, because there was Herbstock, and then just here at the IHS, there were some people yeah. who, who saw me and were like, you're written from the podcast. And I was like, I, I am, yes, hello, here I am. I, I'm still not used to being recognized ever, so... Um, anyway, that was really nice, actually, to, to meet everybody. So, hi. Thank Yay. you for saying hello. And also, a shout-out to Shelly, who loved the Natural Cleaners episode. Mm-hmm. 
and to Dinosaur Nest on Instagram, who loves the pod and is really excited about Lemon Balm and St. John's Wort. That's completely reasonable. Especially this yes, time of year. Especially it's, this time it's of like year. It's like time to get hyped about St. John's Wort. And yeah. Lemon Balm. They're both like just getting big and bushy right now. Yeah. We have a shout out for Thea, who had a question about raspberry leaf, which did, we might have answered. No, we did. Oh, we did. In fact, you did. I, I was did. Yeah, you did. Hey. I was just looking at that today. Hey, good job. Yeah, it was. No, you did a good job. Okay. <laughs> Thea, did he do a good job? You can you can chime in on that one. And also to Sherry, who shared the migraines episode, which was number 61, with a friend in need. Thank you. And also is super excited to share Irby Fun with her grandkids this summer, which I also think is the coolest thing ever. And finally, we have a shout out to Brit Quit 22 who wrote to say she's all caught up on the pod and needs some more. Well, here you go. And the next episode we already have planned. We do. It's our special five-year wedding anniversary episode, uh, so stay tuned for that one. If you're really lucky, we will record it. We're going out to our land in Royalston, um, where we host student retreats, and um, we're going to give ourselves a little retreat. And um, if we can get the battery situation to work out, we're going to record it there. We think that it's really good to have um, some audio texture, just like it's good to have texture yeah, if we when could you're sit down by around. the brook, that yeah, could be nice. It would be nice to have the fire and the burbling brook in the background. Yeah. So if we can make the te- technology work out for it, you guys, then we will. Yeah. Sounds good. All right, well, we hope you have a good week, and we'll be back next time with some more Holistic Herbalism podcasts. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.